Hello and welcome to a very okay podcast. My name is Trey Thompson. I'm the director of the Oklahoma Historical Society and here with me as always is Dr. Bob Blackburn. Bob, it's great to see you again for another great episode of our show. I'm really excited about this one. Thank you, Trey. I always enjoy these and my wife has been listening to our podcast. It's always what? fun when someone in the house <laughs> recognizes what you're doing, uh, but uh, she's been listening and enjoying them and, uh, and around town. I think more people are discovering the podcast. I, I think you're right, Bob, and it's always... So I, I got in the car the other day and my wife was listening to uh, one of the episodes that we'd had in the past and it's always a bit surprising to me. I'm like, oh, she she likes my <laughs> podcast. <laughs> but uh, when we have uh, when we have all these epi- you know, when we first started out, I think our wives were the only ones that were <laughs> listening. And now we, you're right. I start to get comments from people that I'm not related to that are actually <laughs> listening to the show. And I'm so glad that we've been able to do this and continue this. We've been doing this since March of 2021, if you can believe that. We're continuing this this great effort to get these stories out about Oklahoma history. And uh, every time we do one, I always think, that might have been our best one yet. So. <laughs> you know, trade it goes back to the basic premise of why we have an Oklahoma Historical Society, which has always been to collect, preserve, and share. And share has one, always been one of the most challenging. You know, collecting, we're, I don't know, we're probably still getting, when I say we, I still act as if I'm here. <laughs> but we were averaging about 400 collections a year coming into the Historical Society. So collecting has been very good. We've, we've made leaps with preservation, but sharing is the most challenging. How do you do that? Well, this podcast has given us a new tool. Mm-hmm. on sharing. So I want to thank you for, for bringing this into our orbit and making this work. Well, what I love about this is, of course, we've got great museums and historic sites all across the state, which I encourage you to go visit. You can go to our website, okhistory.org, and check out where all of those are. But this is a great medium for sharing history with those who may not be able to go out and, and visit a museum or travel across the state. And so this is us bringing history right to your morning commute in the car or your long road trip or if you're sitting on a plane right now this is us bringing Oklahoma history directly to you. I want to introduce our guests that we have with us today because I'm very excited to have this person with us. Um, uh, Bob Burke is one of our state's preeminent historians and I went to your website Bob and I looked at your for your biography and it says on your website so it has to be true <laughs> that you've written more historical nonfiction books than anyone else in history is that that's uh, what they say of course I've been writing since right after the Civil War <laughs> <laughs> I knew that about you so I want to introduce Bob he was born in Broken Bow Oklahoma which he's very proud of he practices law and writes books in Oklahoma City. He graduated with a journalism degree from the University of Oklahoma and a law degree from Oklahoma City University. He was the director of the Department of Economic and Community Affairs for the state, which is now called the Department of Commerce, and that was during Governor David Boren's administration. He managed Governor David Boren's first campaign for the U.S. Senate in 1978. He's written on such diverse topics as baseball, aviation, art, and religion in Oklahoma. His biography of Bryce Harlow was named the Outstanding Oklahoma History Book of the Year by none other other than the Oklahoma (laughs) Historical Society. And his book about the life of Ralph Ellison was nominated as a 2005 Oklahoma Reads Oklahoma Book Selection. In 2006, he was given the Lifetime Achievement Award by the Oklahoma Center for the Book. 
He was inducted into the Oklahoma Hall of Fame that same year, and he was named as one of the Oklahoma Health Center Foundation's Treasures for Tomorrow honorees in 2010. And in 2010, he was also inducted into the Oklahoma Historians Hall of Fame. Bob, uh, one of these days, you're going to have to really try to make something of your life. <laughs> and, uh, I am working on it. By the way, in this biography, I I cut out a lot. Oh, so. please do, because that bores me. <laughs> and trade, if I can add one anecdote here on Bob uh, before we get going here, and more stories will occur to me as we're going. But in the long history of the Historical Society, we've always collected photographs. But it was kind of a minor collection and we estimate that by the late 70s, we had about 40,000 images, but it was fluctuating. We were losing control. They weren't well cared for. They hadn't been copied. It was a mess. Uh, and But all of us historians, Bob included, I met Bob in the 70s, but we were all using collections uh, at the Historical Society from Opubco. They had a great collection, which we eventually got, but there was a, there was a photographer here in town uh, who is the brother of Tony Hellerman, the famous author of, of Navajo series, uh, Barney Hellerman. And Barney had accumulated several collections for the Meyer collection and, and others, that man Stone and a variety. And I was using his photographs in my books in the late 70s and early 80s. Well, Bob was doing the same thing. Well, at one point, Barney was going out of business. Something was going to happen to that collection. Well, the family wanted money for it. At the time, Historical Society was always strapped. We had not yet developed a fundraising uh, methodology on how to go after it. Today. We're still strapped, by the way. <laughs> we are. we <laughs> could <laughs> use any help you could give us out there. But we do have money for collections now. That is true. That is and true. We have the Bob Blackburn Collections <laughs> Endowment now. That's right. So we did. So we could have responded, but at that yeah. time we couldn't. And up steps Bob Burke and says, we have got to save this for the public for, use, uh, for all time. Bob led a fundraising effort. We acquired the collection. He donated the money to it, helped uh, orchestrate the acquisition. That really started the expansion of our photo collections. Thereafter, it started growing from 40,000. Today, we think 12 million, 12 million yeah. photographs. Because so, remember, you and I were asked to um, uh, appraise uh, the Opubco collection, and so a double B. We're both double Bs. <laughs> so he's BB1, I'm BB2. Yeah, okay? so you see, so if I say going, Bob, we're not yeah. sure who we're talking about during and, this And one. hey, our mutual friend Bob Berry, when he was still alive, we really were confused when we had to get together. And Junior. Yeah. But I, I can't forget that the time we go out to the uh, garage at Opubco to kind of survey all these, well, th there were what, four million images? Mm -hmm. And they were in about 900 filing cabinets. I thought, we're not going to be able to look at all this. Let's do a sampling. But you're right. Photographs uh, tell a lot of stories, and, and I appreciate what you did for all those years. Because, you know, I think Bob became director of OHS uh, uh, right after Charlie Haskell was governor, right? <laughs> <laughs> Seems like it. Yeah. I used to have a lot of hair. <laughs> we all do. Yeah. You got a nice head of hair, That's though, right. Trey. He's well, just getting started, so let's just come back in yeah. 20 years. Yeah, come, come okay. see me in a few years. We'll see how it is. A few more sessions of going over across the street to the legislature, and we'll see how I do. So, 
<laughs> well, it's uh, it's exciting to have you on the podcast, Bob. I've been wanting to have you on for a long time, and I think the topic that we have to talk about is uh, is really a great one for you because one of the uh, one of the main areas of law you practice is workers' compensation yeah. law. And so you've been in this area, and we're going to be talking about the labor movement in Oklahoma. And the reason I wanted to talk about this subject is, you know, I give quite a few tours at the Capitol, as you can imagine. I gave one just this weekend to a friend of yours and a group (laughs) of of alumni from Stanford University. And it was a great group of folks, but I always stop at the state seal. And on the state seal is um, what is called our state motto, although we uh, it's not actually codified in the Constitution <laughs> as our state motto, uh, which is, a, and I did look up how to say this properly for all you Latin aficionados out there, labor omnia winket yep. is the uh, proper way to, uh, to pronounce our motto, which means work conquers all things. And when I tell people about that motto, I say, you know, a lot of people think it's just a nod to, you know, we were agrarian folks in the early days. We were hardworking people, you know, bricklayers and farmers and uh, carpenters and all those kind of things. So this is a tribute to our hardworking nature as Oklahomans, which in a manner of speaking, it is. But what's laying behind this phrase is the fact that this is actually paying homage to uh, organized labor. And organized labor in our state had a massive impact on our Constitution, on our laws. Uh, it really was everything. And I thought, we need to help people understand more about the labor movement in the state and, and where we came from and how we got some of the laws and, and the provisions in our Constitution. So. That made me want to do that. By the way, um, I'm just going to, since we're here and we're talking about the the official, unofficial state motto, uh, that phrase, um, labor omnia winket, was adapted from Virgil's George's book. And uh, there's a phrase in there, and basically the poem was written in support of Augustus Caesar's back-to-the-land policy, which was aimed at encouraging more Romans to become farmers and then became a frequent motto that, motto that was used by various aspects of the U.S. labor movement. And uh, so I, I thought we'd just point that out while hey, we're on hey. the topic. Mm-hmm. But So it's been a fight for a long time. <laughs> it has been a fight for a long time. And uh, which one is BB1? Uh, help me remember. Oh, he's BB1. Okay, uh, Dr. Blackburn <laughs> is BB1. So I was going to see. I'm actually a year older, I think, but we're, we he's are BB1. We're about the same age, right? And I just feel the same age as you are. Well, so. George Knight calls us two Bob Squared. No, no, you're right. He does. I forgot. Yeah, I got what he, he introduces us that way officially. Even. Well, whatever, whatever George Knight says is the gospel. Hey, right? it is. It is. Well, uh, BB One, if you could give us, you know, what's important to understand about how we get to because um, today, uh, you know, in 2001, right to work passed. We're not known as a particularly maybe labor-friendly state today in terms of organized labor. So it's a quite a surprise to learn that, that we do have a lot of ties to organized labor. And Bob, if you could kind of give us a sense, what's going on in the United States in that progressive populist time, 1880s moving into the 1890s, Oklahoma, Oklahoma Territory is formed in 1890. And 
what what's happening in our country that really leads to the labor movement taking hold in Oklahoma? Well, I think you really have to go back to the 1870s in, in territorial history. But to really understand that, to provide a little context, you have to go back to Europe, European traditions, coming out of the Middle Ages, where you have very strong crafts and labor controlled much of society through these craft guilds. And so Europeans were used to having guilds and craftsmen and in different varieties, later unions, but people working together in the same industry. So the glove makers would have a craft. Uh, the chimney sweeps would have their craft. They would set the rules for themselves. They would train apprentices, and there was a way to organize, and largely in the construction industry. So the cathedrals would have been built by the guilds. Mm -hmm. And so coming out of the Middle Ages into Europe, uh, you have a tradition of labor working together. Well, then you throw in the westward expansion into the North American continent and the impact of the frontier. And there's an entire genre of literature on the impact of the frontier and what makes America unique from Europe. And part of that is we became an agricultural society with, a, with land on the frontiers. People could move out away from institutions, away from organization. and you know, all these American myths such as, you know, hard work and perseverance and standing on your own and, you know, uh, standing strong comes out of this frontier experience where it really is a celebration of the individual, which goes up against that European tradition of the group. And so you have this dynamic evolving in America as we go from a largely agricultural society, a Jeffersonian democracy kind of thing, where these are individual Americans, and J Thomas Jefferson thought the perfect American was a farmer, growing their own materials, making their own goods, you know, this, this self-reliance is kind of a, an expression of that. Well, that begins to change, especially after the Civil War. Uh, several things happening. One, we, we're evolving into an industrial nation, uh, starting in the 1820s and 30s, that's happening very quickly. So. Rather than just an agricultural nation and economy, we're becoming more industrialized, especially after the Civil War, especially in the North. And then you throw on top of that migration out of Europe, and especially Eastern Europe, and coming out of Germany and coming out of Poland and Czechoslovakia, as well as Scotland and Ireland and England and France to some degree, and the Italians, the, these people are bringing with them these old medieval traditions of working together as guilds and easily translatable to unions. And so they're coming to America. And so the labor movements really start after the Civil War, becoming very strong parts of our community. And of course, there's struggles. The industrialists, uh, especially farmers, are kind of pushing back. But then you throw another layer on top of that trend, which is what we call populism. And populism, socialism are, are very close cousins. And to step from one to the other is very easy. And it's a very easy step over into what we call progressivism, mm -hmm. which is more of a Theodore Roosevelt kind of thing who would have been opposed to the socialism. But you get commonalities among the socialists, the populists, the progressives. And part of the, the socialist populist is that uh, individuals should be considered foremost in society. We've got to... We've got to control the economy to a degree. We need some kind of a social uh, safety net for people. We need to, to make sure we're taking care of those who can't take care of themselves, children, those with disabilities, 
And then, you know, if you fast forward into the New Deal of the 1930s, that's put on steroids. But that's all happening in the late 19th century in America. And so you throw in this unionization, uh, the changing nature of our economy, and then you get the first railroads built into the Indian Territory, 1878, 1871, through the Indian nations. And with them come the workers. The, the Indians were not going to sit there and work on the railroads. They were not going to be the conductors and the engineers and uh, maintenance crews. And so uh, the companies building these rail lines were bringing in workers. Many of them were at the bottom of the pay scale, the bottom of society in the East. So you get a lot of Eastern Europeans. You get them coming in with their own traditions. And that brings in the unions with the railroads as they come into the territory. And it's growing slowly and changing. Things don't happen overnight. And, and then you throw into that the emergence of the coal industry. And one reason the, the Katy Railroad was built where it is, through McAllister, along that route, is that J.J. McAllister recognized there were coal seams popping out of the ground mm -hmm. around Krebs and Hartshorn and McAllister. And so the Katy officials needed that coal to fire the engines uh, that would haul the goods and make them a profit. And so the coal industry starts, and in eastern Oklahoma it becomes deep shaft. It's not strip at the time. It would later turn to strip mining. But at the time it was deep shaft mining, very dangerous conditions, uh, exploitation. These workers had little voice in the political system and in the Indian Territory even less because they were not citizens, they were not voters. Uh, so if there was an organized government around them, it was tribal, limited to tribal members. And so they were basically disenfranchised when they came to the Indian Territory. And the Union uh, really began as, as a popular alternative to just doing what the mine owners say. And so with all of these things changing and the industrialization, uh, by the time we get to the Constitutional Convention, you not only have the labor movement growing out of the railroad industry, and by this time you have all these railroad communities, such as Shawnee and, and Chickasha and El Reno, as well as Oklahoma City and Tulsa, and the railroads being some of the most important investments in any community. You lived or died by being on the rail. Mm. Uh, at the turn of the century. And so you, you're putting these little pockets of organized labor and with their salaries and with the money flowing into the community, working with the newspapers, working with uh, the school systems and the people who lead a community, the bankers. They understand the importance of the railroad. Unions have more of a voice. The miners are, of course, struggling. You get some strikes finally, but they're organized and become militant to a degree. And then one last layer, and then I'll stop, is that farmers are subject to two whims in their, in their lives. One is climate. Uh, they deal with drought. They deal with hailstorms. Maybe the rains don't come at the right time. Right. Maybe they come too much at the wrong time, uh, and they lose their crops. So they're at the whim of nature, but they're also at the whim of commodities prices on the world market. And Oklahomans tended to think, well, we're rugged individuals out here on the frontier. But the price of cotton in England, the price of wheat in Russia would affect them in the soil in the Oklahoma and Indian territories. Well, as they suffered from, from low prices, from the vagaries of nature, they looked, well, who's the, who's the culprit here? Who do we have to blame? And everyone wants to blame somebody else. Well, they were blaming the railroads 
because they would raise their rates during right. harvest season. Uh, they would allocate cars where they wanted them, and if, if a local group was too militant, they just wouldn't send the rail cars there. And so you get this antagonism between farmers and the rail, and then you throw in the influence of banks. Bankers become the evil empire to the populace. William Jennings Bryan at the national level, the socialists and the populists in Oklahoma. How do you control the banks? How do you control the railroads? Advocating public ownership of utilities, public ownership of the railroad. That became a big issue at this time. Today, you people would think you're crazy if you advocate us behind the railroads and making them our tools of industry. Right. But at the time, it was very popular. And many farmers looking for a way out of it started organizing. Farmers Union is one of the bits still around today, mainly an insurance company, but still with some of the same principles. That we, we recognize that the fact that farmers and ranchers should be working together for the common cause. And what can we do as a group? And so they start with all these local chapters around the state. I edited a book years ago on the history of the Farmers Union. It's difficult read, but a necessary read on, on how they grew. And it was as much a social almost as it was economic. But the farmers' unions join their efforts as groups with labor in the mines, labor in the railroads. And as the cities start to grow, Oklahoma City goes from about 4,000 people in 1893 to 50,000 people by 1907. And as Tulsa is growing with oil, then you get the Barber's Union, and you get the union of uh, the packing plant, the bricklayers, yeah. that goes on and on. Yeah. So urbanization is happening. And so all of these causes come together, and for our particular story with statehood and the Constitutional Convention in 1906 and 1907, just at the peak of all these groups coming together, joining forces, and saying we are going to be a force and a voice at the Constitutional Convention. BB2, okay. <laughs> you're from you're from Broken Bow, yeah. and southeastern Oklahoma is uh, was was mining country, and uh, you know you're from the Choctaw Nation. So the first the very first union that was formed in what is now Oklahoma was in Indian Territory, and it was the Knights of Labor uh, that organized miners, and this was in August of 1882. And, and the reason that has to happen is I think it's uncontroverted that. Mines in Oklahoma were the most dangerous in the whole world in the late 1800s. I've read statistics before that showed that uh, the rate of deaths per ton of coal pulled out was double than any other state, was double that uh, in Britain. So you have these incredible explosions. There was one at Krebs, I think, that killed what? nearly 100 people at one time, one mine explosion. So you have the most dangerous mines in the world. Yeah. And as Bob said, nobody is sticking up for these folks. So it was ripe for unionization. Well, in Indian Territory, you know, there was no territorial government. There, no. Was, no, there was no uniform system of laws. You had each individual reservation, and you're right. Those mines, uh, our mines were twice as deadly as those in Pennsylvania. 13.1 men killed for every million tons of coal, and there were 10 major mine disasters that were recorded between 1885 and 1906. Yeah, so so somebody's got to represent the unions, okay? Another thing is happening. 
as the need for unionization came along because of the dangerous mines, you also have uh, in the populist movement a hatred of big business because, uh, you know, we talk about today, you'll see about some merger uh, of where some company buys somebody else. This was happening big time as the 20th century was born. You have uh, huge companies that are formed from buying others. Even in Oklahoma, you have like the Rock Island Railroad had bought up all the local railroads. So as you get to the Constitutional Convention, you have people like Peter Hanratty, who had come here originally from Scotland via Pennsylvania, uh, that would become the, the union leader and vice chairman of the Constitutional Convention. Uh, I, I note, too, that the unions were, were so important to the Constitutional Convention that our first governor, Charlie Haskell, uh, Charles Haskell, I didn't know him to call him Charlie, but, <laughs> but Charles Haskell actually made a motion at the Constitutional Convention that the pen that was signed, that people signed uh, for our Constitution was to be given to Samuel Gompers, who was the head of the American Federation of Labor, AFL, yeah. before it ever gotten, got together with CIO, as we know it today. So you have big business. You have people like Charles Haskell and uh, Alfalfa Bill Murray, who became chairman of the Constitutional Convention. Certainly, Bill Murray is a big-time populist. And they believe that they call them trusts. But, but all the big companies were not necessarily a trust. But there was a terrible hatred of big business. And, and that, frankly, the big business and the consolidation of businesses was causing commodity prices to, be, to increase. The railroads, big business. So you come to the Constitutional Convention, and you have people like Peter Hanratty and Kate Bernard, our first commissioner of charities and corrections. I'll talk about Miss Kate in a moment. But Peter Hanratty was such an interesting guy. He had started working in the coal mines in his native Scotland at age nine. So he immigrated to the United States. He works in the mines in Pennsylvania. He tries to do some organizing there and basically was run out of Pennsylvania. So he ends up in Indian Territory. And he, his job in the mines was to go in and to light or begin a dynamite charge. And many of the explosions were caused by all the dust in the coal mines. In fact, a side note, Hanratty saved no telling how many lives because having had the experience of doing that, he later developed a process of where they would wet down the dust and that at least made, uh, when they did have an explosion, it caused it to be less severe. But, so Hanratty becomes a major leader in the in the coal patch and in, in the mines. And, and then we get to the Constitutional Convention. He's the vice chairman. Uh, he and Charles Haskell 
want to be known as the voice of the populist. In fact, Charles Haskell had the, on the campaign trail, uh, he talked about there are two kinds of people, producers and parasites. Mm. <laughs> and he talked about the producers are the people, everybody from farmers to the craftsmen, people who were producing things for consumption by American society. Then the parasites were frankly the big business people who were sitting off in Chicago or somewhere in the East and, and they were the parasites. And so you had this feeling that we've got to do everything we can in our constitution to prevent big government, which they assumed was, par was run by the parasites, and we have to limit the authority of corporations. That's why we certainly had the most liberal constitution of its day, and that's why we have a corporation commission today, <laughs> because these guys were absolutely insistent that we control corporations. William Jennings Bryan thought our Constitution was better than the American Constitution. Oh, yeah. Mm -hmm. And, and he, he would come down occasionally, and we have several. He was living in Missouri, and several of our uh, provisions of our Constitution actually came from Missouri. He would hand-deliver them down here. You know, Trey, one thing, too, as Bob's giving that overview, you know, We've always had leaders from different parts of society. We have those that we need economic development. We've got to do this. We have to have schools. Well, the people respond. And if you can't get the will of the people in a majority, you're not going to elect the people you want elected. And part of the resentment at the time that gave Peter Hanratty and, and Kate Bernard such uh, support across the state is that uh, many farmers were in debt. Debt was a huge issue on the frontier. And with the Homestead Act, <clears throat> after five years of living on property and making certain improvements, you got title to it. And once you got title, fee title to your land, you could mortgage it. And most of the people who had made the land runs, who came in, had very little with them, so they didn't have the capital. Oklahoma uh, did not have much of a banking system, and even in the Constitution, it, it, it single-unit banking came out of that because they didn't trust banks. But people would t would take out a mortgage on their land to buy the plow, later to buy the tractor or to build a barn or to, to buy your, your chicks so you could raise poultry or to, or to get in the market buying horses, mules, or planting your next wheat crop, whatever it might be. There was always this need for capital. And many Oklahomans had borrowed money. And then when you get a drought or a crop failure or the price goes to half of what it was when you planted and you took out your loan, uh, you have this general distress among farmers across the territory. And they're on small plots that are not highly productive at a time when farms are being consolidated nationally, and it would be in Oklahoma as well, but you still have people on that land still with this dream of being a farmer, of, of living this independent life, of growing your own food, your own crops, and being the, the master of your own kingdom, but yet they were burdened with this debt and looking at the railroads as uh, taking advantage of them at the worst time of the year. And so the Peter Hanratties of the world had a very willing electorate out there saying, yeah, go get them. 
And that's what that's way politics works. Yeah, it's really interesting. You know, when you look at what was being faced by farmers in, in Oklahoma Territory, between 1889 and 1897, wheat prices fell 15%, corn prices 17%, cotton by 30%. Mm-hmm. And so in many cases, it was costing more to produce mm-hmm. these, these, and these are three key crops here in Oklahoma, than you would get by the time you went and sold. And the farmers started looking around and saying, by the time we have to ship things at the railroads, by the time the middlemen all get their cut, we're getting nothing out of this. And so this is when they start getting together. And they uh, there's an organization called the Farmers Alliance mm-hmm. that pops up in the 1890s. And the Farmers Alliance really, they wanted to start setting up these cooperatives mm-hmm. and where we can all kind of gather together, we can sell our stuff together, and we can try and take out the middlemen. Well, unfortunately, it wasn't terribly successful because what they found out was even with these cooperatives, they all had overhead and they all had to be able to, you know, they had set up these stores that only farmers could use and that everybody was buying on credit. Well, when everybody's buying on credit, no one is 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 able to pay cash at the time, then they're not able to sustain themselves. And so the Farmers Union is created in 1902 to assist members in buying and selling. They want to educate the agricultural class in scientific farming methods. They want to uh, um, systemize methods of production and distribution and bring farmers up to the standards of other industries. By 1904, there are 150,000 members of the Farmers Union across the United States. And the Farmers Union comes to Oklahoma in 1903 and has 524 local organizations within 18 months. By the way, I got this information from the great historian Danny Goble, oh, okay. uh, whose, uh, <laughs> whose book is kind of like one of my go-tos when I'm oh. looking at early Oklahoma history. It's hey, called, I looked at that early this morning. <laughs> yeah, it's called Progressive Oklahoma, yeah, The Making yeah, of a New yeah. Kind of State, and I can't recommend it highly yeah. enough if you're wanting to know kind of the foundations of our state. But, but yeah, there was this sense... In pre-Civil War, if you're a farmer, you're selling most of your stuff within a local market. That you know what's going on in Europe or what's going on in the eastern part of the United States is it's impacting you a little, but it's not impacting you a lot. And it's the same with industrialization. You know, pre-Civil War, you're going to go set up your maybe you're a silversmith or maybe you're a carpenter, and you're going to be dealing with a local market. But once we get into industrialization, there was this feeling of helplessness. Now you're an employee of another trust or a giant corporation, and now you don't have as much power to determine your own destiny. And the unions came along to try and alleviate that sense of helplessness. That, In other words, when we all get together collectively, we're going to have this ability to move the needle. And, of course, in the mines... It, you know, Hanratty wasn't successful right off the bat. There were there were several strikes that were several years long, and it took a long time to get uh, some traction on actually getting what they wanted to get in terms of pay raises, in terms of a, a reasonable workday, uh, child labor, all of those kinds of things. Yeah, especially before statehood. There was one strike uh, for four and a half years, and it was really tough for the Hanratty's uh, and the leaders of the time to sustain the miners during that time. But so you have the farmers that organized because they recognized that there is strength in numbers. And they, as an individual farmer, as an individual miner, or in the cities, as an individual streetcar driver, 
they realize that they can't do that by themselves. But I really believe that we would not had we would not have had the incredible early history in Oklahoma of of a great impact of organized labor had it not been for the distrust of big companies and the horrible mine conditions in uh, McAllister, Krebs, uh, Hartshorn, those areas. And a third thing, the distrust of commodity markets and the railroads. All of this foments, and as Bob said, then politicians, Charles Haskell um, was not a union organizer. Uh, he was from Muskogee, and, but he knew if he was going to be elected as the first governor of Oklahoma, he had to be a populist. He had to address the issues that all the people were facing because everybody had lots of problems. And so we come together to the Constitutional Convention. And I love to tell the story about the only woman mm -hmm. who was able to address the Constitutional Convention, uh, Constitutional Convention in Guthrie is a five foot, 90 pound dynamo. Kate Bernard uh, had come to Oklahoma with her father uh, around 1900. Uh, some of her first, she became famous really because two reasons. She raised a lot of money. She would put little ads in the newspaper, bring all of your clothing down to my address and I will distribute it to the poor. She also was very interested in mine safety uh, and child labor laws. In fact, she wrote the child labor law provisions of the Constitution. Uh, she, I can just see this. I would have loved to have been there when she would address uh, with her 90 pounds, would stand up on a rock at Krebs and address a bunch of mine, miners. But she would convince them to approve the Constitution because she went around this state and was as responsible as any person in getting the people of Oklahoma to approve this new constitution. She would not have been allowed to speak to the Constitutional Convention, however, without the intervention of several of the unions. Um, before statehood, uh, the farmers and the miners union, uh, they all got together at a big meeting in Shawnee and came up with what we know from history it's 24 things that they wanted in the Constitution called the Shawnee Demands. Yes. And, and there were things that today we would just assume uh, that everybody's always had, like uh, uh, fewer, I mean, don't work more than eight-hour days. Uh, don't uh, have child children, 12-year-old kids, being exploited in the mines or on farms. And... Uh, so all of this is coming together at one time, but Miss Kate took advantage of that and went around the state and was allowed because of the influence of the unions to address the Constitutional Convention. And she told them like it was, you know, she said, if you don't approve some of these items on the child labor laws, especially, 
then I hope that your crops, as she's telling people, uh, you farmers who have come up here as delegates to the Constitutional Convention, I hope that your uh, crops die uh, and, and wither away like the children who are going to wither away if you don't pass these child labor law provisions. Tell us what you really think. Yeah. Kate, right? mm -hmm. Hey, well, at 90 pounds, she would tell them. Well, you know, Kay Bernard, she wouldn't have been, as you mentioned, she wouldn't have been allowed to address the Constitutional Convention if she did not have a, a huge power base behind mm -hmm. her. And that power base came from the unions. We talked a little bit about this when Bob and I did our episode on Kate Bernard a few months ago, but she founded several labor unions in Oklahoma City. She founded the Federal Union Number 12374 for unskilled laborers in 1907, and she builds her own power base. In other words, she wasn't going to sit around and wait to be recognized. She was going to go out there, she was going to build her own power base, and she was going to be heard. And yes, at the Sean, once again, she was a, one of the driving forces at the Shawnee Demands, which was in August of 1906. And what's interesting about the Shawnee Demands is it's not one labor union. It's a group of labor unions that get together, both the industrial and, and the agrarian labor unions. So you've got the Farmers Union, the Twin Territories Federation of Labor, uh, and then you have uh, other independent railroad brotherhoods that meet, and they say, okay, we know from the Enabling Act that, that is, is passed that we're going to get to vote on a constitution. And if we're going to have a constitution, then here are some of the things we want. The agrarian folks wanted, they wanted a commissioner of, commissioner of agriculture. They wanted a liberal homestead exemption law, and they wanted the prohibition of gambling and farm products. The labor forces wanted an eight-hour workday for minors and public employees, the creation of the labor commissioner, the chief mine ex inspector. They wanted health and safety measures for laborers and protection for employees injured on the job, which is something you still work yeah, in today, yeah. Bob. And also getting it, Bob into that progressive and populist era, we want the initiative petition. We want the referendum. We want the ability to recall. We want direct primary elections as well, which is something that was not common at the time. Yeah. Hey, Bob Blackburn, would you agree with me that no other special interest had as much input into the Oklahoma Constitution as the unions of the day? I would. Uh, you know, today we look around and we see the the power and the voice of tribal interests. Mm -hmm. That was not there at the time. No. The federal government with the Curtis Act 1898 says we're going to abolish tribal governments. Indian people were allotted their own land and just said, hey, we're, we're moving on from the Indian Territory. So they were really oppressed at the time. They were mm -hmm. not really a major voice. There were a few American Indians, but mainly the mixed bloods like Clint Rogers at the CONCON. Yeah. But he was not speaking so much as a Cherokee as he was as a big rancher, landowner. Yeah. Uh, so, uh, yes, uh, I would say that they were the best organized of any of the individual parts of the community. Uh, Tulsa and Oklahoma City were separated uh, by parties. Oklahoma City was more of a Democratic town. Southern Democrat, I might add, not yeah. so much modern Democrat <laughs> yeah. party. Yeah. Tulsa was more of a Republican party. Uh, politically, the parties were not as strong as they would become because the state was so split with the land runs and the way 
settlement patterns came about. So the Cherokee outlet may have been a majority Republicans, but then the old Kiowa and Comanche lands open in 1901 would have been more Southern Democrats. Mm -hmm. So you get this patchwork quilt of settlement where political parties cannot really put things together. Yeah, no, the parties were not powerful at all. No, no. very weak. And uh, the Republicans had 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 the advantage of patronage during mm -hmm. the territorial years with the territorial governors, uh, all with one exception, appointed by Republican presidents. So the Republican Party had patronage, but that was going away. And so people are always looking ahead. How am I going to get these jobs? And so the parties were, were secondary. The tribes had been silenced for the moment. And labor and farmers all came together at the right time. Going back to your, your comment about the Constitutional Convention honoring Samuel, Samuel Gompers, Charles Haskell had the, re the resolution, and he gave him one of the pens, and it said, in commemoration of the first Constitution that has ever been written in the United States in which the labor interests have taken a part, the same protecting the interests of the common people more fully than any other Constitution in the United States. Oh, yeah. I mean, the eastern states... Uh, especially some of those that were highly unionized, they marveled at how Oklahoma was able to enact provisions in a constitution that protected common folks, you know. And that, that's because of this basic distrust of big government and distrust. I mean, our constitution went so far as to, and I think it's still in there. Someday I've got to sue on that. Okay, <laughs> No, because, because it even sets the flashpoint of kerosene. Our Constitution does. And, the, you know, that's one of the things when people make fun of our Constitution. They say it's more like, you know, an episode of, or reading an edition of War and Peace than it is what should be a, a Constitution, which is a basic framework, and then to let the legislature write the laws that sort of fill all of that out. But you have to understand what's going on in Oklahoma, and it goes back to the time when, uh, once again, people felt terribly exploited. Why did they set the flashpoint of kerosene? Because the people that were selling kerosene were putting gasoline in the kerosene, yeah. and they were trying to uh, sell less expensive kerosene, yeah. water yeah. it down with gasoline, which has a higher flashpoint, which means that if you do something wrong, you're going to blow yourself up. And that actually happened several times. So they said, we're not going to let that happen anymore. We're going to protect the people. Here's the flashpoint of kerosene. Exactly. Yeah, because of this distrust of business. You know, one of the things the, the Shawnee demands, <clears throat> when we get to the Constitutional Convention, uh, the unions don't get everything. But they do have, get a mine inspector, uh, you'll remember, Bob, for until 1976 when we had the Yes All 8 campaign, um, uh, we still elected the state mine inspector. I always thought as a young aide to David Warren, uh, there was an office in the basement of the state capitol uh, of the state mine inspector. The light was never on in there. Because for many, many, many years, we elected and re-elected a guy named Ward Paget. Now, I never knew if he existed or not. I never met him. Did you? No. Now, he did, and George and I said he was a good guy because he was from McAllister. Mm. But 
we elected the we elected for nearly three quarters of a century after the Constitution. We elected the state mine inspector. We did away with that. We still elect the labor commissioner, and that's unusual for states to do that. Uh, we have a very good one right now, I might mm-hmm. say. I agree. And we, but but that populist attitude of the day is still with us a hundred and nearly 120 years later. Yeah, it's really interesting. And there's been several proposals over the last few years by the legislature uh, to um, to curb the initiative petition process or to change it a little bit mm-hmm. to where it's, well, you need to go get a certain number of signatures in every congressional district or in all these different places. And the people have really pushed back on that, I think, because you know there is this sense of wanting to be able to take matters into your own hands if the legislature or if the powers that be aren't getting it done for you. You know, Trey, tra- excuse me, Bob, uh, this is a little away from labor, but I think we have to understand to understand the success of the labor forces at the time of the CONCON is that Oklahoma has uh, a culture that's been dominated, not numerically, but by strength of culture, the Scots-Irish culture. James Webb, a U.S. senator, wrote a book about the Scots-Irish in American history, and he goes into this this culture that goes back to the highlands of Scotland, where you fear those people coming out of London who want to take away your your weapons. Uh, you have a fear of government at a distance. You want local control. You want someone in your valley or your tribe to be that. So you get that in the county commissioners in the Constitutional Convention who have probably more power than any other elected officials at the time. And that's the way Oklahomans wanted it. And Scots-Irish culture uh, is still there today. When I talk, when I get questions from reporters about a certain election, I say, well, you've got to throw in the Scots-Irish attitude that all of us have. Most of us have Scots-Irish culture. Mm-hmm. My family does. Bob, hey, I'm yes, 99. Does. I did that test with Ancestry.com. I'm 99.2% Scotch-Irish. <laughs> and I'm over 80. So, you know, we all should. I guess I need to do the test. I don't know. <laughs> but that, that was so yeah. dominant. And as James Webb says in his book, it may not be the majority of people, but it's going to be the dominant culture because it is so strong and it's so embedded in this American ideal of the rugged individualist on the frontier. You take that and you still see it today with don't mess with a gun on my hip. Don't tell me to what to do out of Washington, D.C. We don't want those federal funds. And that's happened in Oklahoma. Alfalfa Bill did not want federal relief money in the 1930s. Largely a Scots-Irish attitude about government at a distance. So When he was governor, he said, the New Deal is a raw deal. Yeah. And then you get into this isolationism. Right now, America's going through these, these pains again of, mm. do we isolate ourselves, withdraw aid from Israel, uh, from Egypt, from Ukraine? Uh, this isolationism is part of that Scots-Irish culture, is that let's take care of the people in our valley and let's keep others from coming in and, and, and changing the way we live. And that's been there, and it was there in a very strong sense when Peter Hanratty and, and Kate Bernard were, were speaking to the people. This is people power. Yeah. Yeah. We've got to rise up and represent us in our valley, in our community. And it's still a part of our political dialogue today. So, I think one of the most ironic things about elections in the history of Oklahoma is that in our first election, Kate Bernard was the leading vote-getter. 
Right. She was our first commissioner of charities and corrections. And we elected that until that same Yes All Eight campaign in 1976 uh, made that. And, well, we did away with that and just simply have a commissioner of labor. And we have a corrections department. And we did, uh, um, but we did away. We had that for three quarters of a century, but Miss Kate led all vote getters, including Charles Haskell, who was our first governor. Yet, Miss Kate could not vote for herself. Yeah, because we were still uh, a decade and a half away from women's suffrage. So, BB2, I'd be interested at the risk of getting a little political, but, you know, and we don't have time for a deep dive into this, but looking forward, you know, with our our labor roots in Oklahoma and now looking at at where Oklahoma is today in terms of of embracing sort of the union sentiment and unions, where, where did that shift happen over time? I think the shift happened after World War II uh, because... Uh, after World War One, you had a proliferation of unions in Oklahoma. Everybody from bricklayers to um, to streetcar drivers. You had a lot of strikes. Now that's not just in Oklahoma, but then after World War Two, we had um, we had times of prosperity. Uh, companies were making money, so. Uh, they were not, in my opinion, a- as tough on workers as people had been before. And then uh, Oklahoma ultimately passes a right-to-work law in this century. Uh, I mean, they t- we, what, took 40 years to do it because it was tried for a long time. Uh, history, I don't know what effect that election had on Oklahoma. And basically right to work means that you you if you're working in a union shop you can't be compelled to join the union. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. No, I was just gonna say, I don't know in our lifetime will we ever know the effect of that vote, which has been twenty years ago. I don't know how you measure that. I think you can measure it politically, if if not socially or or economically. But another element there after World War II, and the reason the unions remained strong as they did, is that the Oklahoma City Chamber of Commerce created a new division in 1947 called Industrial Development. Mm. How do we bring industry to the state? They saw the impact of Tinker Air Force Base, uh, which started at Midwest Air Depot and then renamed it. And then in Tulsa, you get the old Douglas Bomber plant becoming American Airlines, which is unionized. Business leaders in Oklahoma said, we want that same thing, so how do we get the jobs? How do we get others to bring in? Well, almost all of the companies that come in in that era, all the way from Western Electric, which was the industrial side of Ma Bell, which was making all of the switches, all of the phone sets, everything else, was unionized. The last really to be recruited was General Motors, which was unionized, and I had a person very involved with all that saying, we never worried that they were unionized. We just wanted their jobs in Oklahoma. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. But when General Motors came in, Western Electric was there, you get other industries that are unionized, they're putting together their political action committees. Yeah, the business owners have their own so-called PACs and say, hey, you know, let's pass the envelope around all the executives, and everyone puts in a $100 bill. That was just the way of life in Oklahoma. 
Well, the unions then do the same thing. So at General Motors, pass the envelope, everyone puts in $10. They don't have 100, but they might have 10. And then they work. I remember when my wife ran for the legislature in 94, Bob, you remember that year, same year Frank Keating was elected, who was a proponent of, of right to work. Uh, almost every Democrat had to use printers that had the union label on it. Mm. You did not print a brochure or a poster that didn't have that union stamp on it. Uh, the firefighters union in Oklahoma City, the, the Fraternal Order of Police, which is really a, a union, uh, was very active. The printers union was still very active. And so into the 90s, you still have unions being very much a part of the political system. And right to work, in my opinion, was, was largely political. How do you weaken your mm -hmm. opponents? That's just the nature of, of competition, whether it's sports or the world of politics, is that we can weaken the Democrats by weakening the people who are supporting these candidates. And so it really starts changing the 90s. And then in, in general, in American public opinion, uh, I think Ronald Reagan had an impact mm -hmm. on the attitude towards when he fired all of the air traffic controllers. Right. That was a huge blow. Even though he had been a union guy when, yeah. <laughs> during exactly. his Hollywood. time in Hollywood. Oh, yeah. But of course, the reality for him, how do you weaken your opponent? Yeah. And that's just the way it is in, in, in any part of life. But the unions really start taking a hit in, in the 80s and 90s and uh, into the 21st century. And it has to be partisan because throughout our history, uh, Republicans have been known to be pro-business and Democrats uh, nationally and in Oklahoma were more not necessarily pro-labor unions, um, but were they took the opposite view. And with few exceptions, as we have elected more Republican office holders, I believe that the attitude in Oklahoma now is totally pro-business. From the legislative, uh, from the, I'm not saying that's bad, I'm saying that our governor is pro-business um, because I, as a representative of injured workers for 43 years, uh, like a fair playing field. But there are those in Oklahoma who want uh, pro-business justices on the Supreme Court. Well, I want uh, pro, um, I want justices on the Supreme Court who are unbiased mm -hmm. and who will give all parties, but I mean, we have an attitude uh, largely in the legislature and in the executive office of let's be pro-business. Now, part of that is, hey, we want to create jobs and this industrial development, and Bob is so correct that the Oklahoma City Chamber in doing that, in getting jobs, but we can't be just totally pro-business. But what's interesting to me as a historian is that our attitudes here in the 2020s are 180 degrees what they were at statehood. We were pro-individual in 1907. We, because of all these unions, we really were, we have a distrust of big business. We do not have that now. And in fact, we promote big business. Well, and now the legislature has made several attempts to give 
a large sum of public money to entice big business to come to Oklahoma. And perhaps that's just the way of doing things now. As we get ready to wrap up, I do want to tell one story. I'm not sure. Were you aware there was a labor strike when they built the state capitol? So, I don't think so. Yeah, so I, <laughs> no. I uncovered this in, <laughs> okay. the, uh, in the editions of the Daily Oklahoman from okay. 1916. So the March 2nd, 1916 edition of the Daily Oklahoman, the granite workers wanted a raise. They were making $4 a day. These were the people that were out there. So the granite on the Capitol, there's just really a small section of Oklahoma granite on the Capitol. It was quarried at 10 Acre Rock near Tishmingo, Oklahoma. It was brought up to the Capitol grounds and it was unhewn. And so there were granite workers working that were carving the granite to place on the building. And they wanted a raise from $4 a day to $4.50 a day. Hey. And so uh, ninety-five. there were 95 granite cutters that were employed in the construction of the Capitol. It says they refused to go to work on Wednesday. And uh, the granite was about half completed on the entire building. And they uh, walked off the job. And so uh, I've kind of traced this through several other articles. Well, the strike eventually goes to all the other workers on the building, too. So it goes from the granite workers to a general strike. Everybody walks off the job. And this goes for about uh, six weeks. Wow. There was a six-week labor strike on the Capitol. Because it's a year before the Capitol is finished. That's right. The Capitol was finished in June of 1917. And so uh, April 18th, 1916 edition of the Daily Oklahoman said, Monday marked the beginning of the second week of the resignation of all the union workers on the state capitol building. The day was occupied by conferences by officials of the Oklahoma State Federation of Labor and the offices of the organization in the Patterson building. Now, who was paying the workers? So this would have been the Stewart Construction Company. Okay. They were employed. Because they were the general contractor. But uh, April 21st, 1916 edition, the laborers employed in the construction of the Capitol who have been out on strike the last 10 days will return to work Friday morning, according to a statement by J.H. Fredrickson, who was the supervisor on the project. And they agreed, reached an agreement after a series of conferences between the strikers and the representatives of Did the Did they company. granite workers get that? 50 cent raise. As best as I can recall, <laughs> they ended up getting that raise to $4.25. Oh, okay. Yeah, I could have mediated that in two days. I bet you could have. I bet you could have, Bob. But, uh, but so a six-week strike wow. on the Capitol building. Interestingly enough, they still finished the Capitol about two months ahead of schedule. So hey. even with all of that. With that uh, extra quarter a day. Yeah. <laughs> That's incentive. Mm -hmm. So, well, this has been very enlightening. And, wow. Bob, I want to thank you for taking time to come on the program and to, and to talk about this. And I think a lot of folks out there out there will learn a lot about our labor history in the state of Oklahoma. It's very interesting. Thank you for having me. Thank you, Bob. Well, uh, BB1, as always, <laughs> it's been a lot of fun with you, too. And so uh, we'll look forward to talking to you for our next episode. Very good. Thank you, Trey. You have been listening to a Very Okay podcast hosted by Trey Thompson and Dr. Bob Blackburn. The podcast is produced by the Oklahoma Historical Society. Visit us at okhistory.org and find us on social media by searching for at okhistory. I encourage you to purchase a membership to OHS to help us continue our mission to collect, preserve, and share Oklahoma's unique and fascinating history.